This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne-wy-giving. We're in Philippians. We're still in chapter 2. Last week, we spent the entire study in this in the third paragraph of chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that actually constituted the entire teaching. There was a lot to that. There was a lot to that kind of a study or to, to, to the character of these people that Paul is commending them for having a spirit of obedience, not having an unruly spirit. Unruly Christians don't grow. They really don't. Unruly Christians are believers that fight against the word. They argue against the word. They resist it rather than just taking it at face value when it says something, extract the teaching for, from it, recognize that it's for us. We're here. We're Christians in the New Testament. But a real disciple does that. That's not to say that you don't ever encounter something in the word that doesn't throw you for a loop. You don't ever find something in there that that confronts you and you think, well, wait a second. I didn't realize it was wrong for me to be doing that or I didn't realize that I should be doing this. And so the flesh tries to revive and maybe puts up some resistance. But the true disciple, the the, the Philippian disciple, if you will, if we'll just borrow their name as a tag for their type of character. The Philippian disciple will overcome that. The Philippian, you over, you've overcome other things before, haven't you? When you were a brand new believer and you were first learning about the word of God and it was putting a finger on all kinds of things in your life, some of which you already knew, but had just never been told. And some things you didn't have a clue about until you read about it in the word. And so you overcame those obstacles why would we ever stop overcoming obstacles if God, by the word of God and by the spirit of God, puts his hand on something in our life? So as Philippian believers, with that kind of character that the Philippians had, we have a spirit of obedience. And not just as we taught, not just when the preacher's around, not just when the pastor is around, not just when the overseer or the evangelist is in town. Oh, quick, everybody look spiritual. You know, the big man is here. Well, it, we don't really think of them as the big man. That's kind of a misunderstanding of how the hierarchy goes. They are our servants, aren't they? Just as I am your servant and they serve us and there are those that serve them. We're all servants one another in the body of Christ. But in the absence of authority figures within the hierarchy of the church of Almighty God. It's not just in their presence. That's the measure of Christian character. That is one very serious measure of Christian character is, do we obey when nobody's around? Do we obey when no one's looking? Do we obey when there's no danger of somebody thunking us in the head? Not that's that that's how we do it. But when there's no danger of someone calling us out or saying, hey, brother, you ought not to be doing that. We ought to have an obedient spirit regardless of who's around. And then we parked it and really spent a lot of time on the phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that blossomed into a couple of other of, of deeper teachings, particularly in uh, where Godly fear, holy fear, and godly reverence are, con are concerned. And how we cannot afford 
to develop an over-familiar attitude with God and with the things of God. Because God does command fear and trembling. There's a reason why the apostle used that language here. There's a reason why he spoke of that and, and he spoke of fear and trembling. And it reminds us that, well, yes, he is love. Yes, he is a father. He's also a judge. And make no mistake, he is God and nobody else is. Amen. Amen. And so when we get when we get to feeling so familiar with the word and so familiar with divine things, the house of God, the coming together in the name of Jesus Christ, when we get familiar with him, when we get too familiar with those things, we become over familiar with those things. And then we lose respect for those things. We lose reverence for those things. And we lose the fear of doing the wrong thing. And that's a very bad place to be. Just to, just to, to summarize this little review here before we jump into verse 14. That really is a very bad place to be. Because the Bible even talks about people that have no fear of God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God within them. And when you have no fear of God, which is to say you have no respect for him, you have no concern that, that he will judge one day because he has to. He's God. He's perfect and he is holy. And he is all powerful in all of these things. And he is ultimately just. When you have no fear of judgment for doing things wrong. Then you have no restraint. You have no self-restraint. You have no any other kind of restraint. And then it's just like, whatever. Anything goes. I'm going to just do whatever I want to do. I'll do whatever I want to do, and 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 uh, what, what would some people say? And the devil take the consequences. So, well, the devil's not going to take the consequences. We take the consequences when we do things that are wrong. The individual believer reaps those consequences when we deliberately go against the word of God. So, let's get into the into the new stuff here. Let's finish off the paragraph first of all. He says, "For it is God." This is verse thirteen. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now let's take this whole paragraph together. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So everything that he said in the first two verses He's referring to here in the last one in verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you. It's God, brothers and sisters, that's working in you to what? To both will and to do his good pleasure. It's God that's in you that causes you to will the will of God, to desire the will of God. And it is God working in you that also causes you to do the will of God. You see how he's phrased that? The two key words there are will and do. It's God that works in you, both to will. That's part of your being. That's part of who you are. It doesn't necessarily involve taking action yet. It, that's where it all starts, is in the will. And we are only able to will the, word, the will of God in our own lives because of the Spirit of God at work within us. Because if he was not in us, then we would not care. We would not care if it wasn't for the Holy Ghost moving upon us first to convict us and bring us to Christ and second to move within us 
to do that which God wants us to do. And this, this, the Calvinists are really big on this particular, on this particular line of thinking, and they're right in this case, because they believe in a doctrine that's called the doctrine of total depravity, okay? And it's one of the five points of that particular denomination of Christianity, okay? Not everything that Calvinists believes are right, is right, but a lot of what they believe is, okay? But one of those, one of their core doctrines that is in fact right on the money is a belief in total depravity. What do you mean a belief in it? That we should be totally depraved? No, that we start out being totally depraved. We were all born into the world, lost and in sin. By definition, we were depraved. And it is, man is incapable, is completely incapable of even wanting to do right, even wanting to please God, wanting to be right with God, except the Holy Spirit move upon them to convict them. That is the first job of the Holy Ghost. If we can just segue for a second over into a little bit of teaching about the Holy Spirit. That is the first job of the Holy Ghost. Well, I thought he was our, I thought his first job was being a comfort. No, not really, because he's not going to comfort a sinner who is lost and on his way to hell. He's going to convict that sinner so that that sinner in their state of total depravity can be moved upon, will be moved upon to seek the will of God, to seek forgiveness of their sins, to feel remorse for their sins, first of all, and then to, to repent and to seek forgiveness for their sins. That has to happen first. Well, that's this part right here. It is God which worketh in you both to will. Well, we have to be willing first before we're going to do anything. Am I right? We feel that sort of thing every morning when we wake up, don't you? Wake up, long clock goes off, or your cell phone sounds off, or whatever, it's time to roll out of bed. That flesh is about as willing to do that as it is willing to go to a firing squad and be on the receiving end of it. You know what I mean? Flesh isn't willing at all. So you have to overcome that, but that's a different lesson. It is the Spirit of God. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. First, we are made willing, and then we take action accordingly. Then we do according to what God has made us willing to do or who has worked in us for us to be willing to do. Let's move on. Verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So he says, do all things. The whole thing is one sentence from verse 14 through the end of the paragraph, verse 16. Do all things without murmurings or uh, murmurings and disputings. And then he tells us why, but let's, let's not just rush past that. This is good old-fashioned how-we-do-it Christianity right here. There's no wiggle room in this very clear verse for interpreting. Well, how do you interpret murmurings and disputings? Well, you tell me. What, is, what does it mean 
to murmur in the biblical context. You go back to the Old Testament and you read about the Jews, the children of Israel, as they were making their way out of Egypt and slavery towards the promised land and a land of their own and so forth. They were already liberated, but they encountered things along the way that caused them to grumble, murmur and complain, the Bible says. Murmurings and complainings, disputings. All of these, these things speak of the same kind of spirit. It's like, you're told to do something by your mom or your dad and you just really don't want to do it because you're nine and it's a Saturday morning like we were talking about all your friends are going to go watch cartoons or hang out at the mall, but you had to collect hay. or You had to go haying. You had to go bale some hay. You had to go do some other type of work or you had to clean your room or you had to vacuum the house or you had to go pull weeds. That's what, that, was a, that was almost a punishment job in my family. What did you do? Well, you might have obeyed, but you sure grumbled the whole time while you did it, right? Believe I'm doing this on a Saturday. Believe I'm doing pulling stupid weeds, bailing hay, pushing a vacuum cleaner into trash cans, and I can't believe this. That's murmurings. That is grumbly, gripey, murmury, complainy, complaininess. There, that's good English, isn't it? Do all things without murmurings and disputings. That's when you went toe-to-toe -toe, toe -to -toe with your mom and dad. I don't want to do that. I don't have to do that. You're not the boss of me. And then everything that came after that. And then it escalated and turned into a fight. And then you were grounded. You know how that went. You remember how that went. He says not to be like that. And the spirit of Christ and the spirit of a disciple does not have that kind of spirit. It doesn't have that kind of spirit of murmuring and grumbling and complaining. Well, I'm going to obey, but I'm going to sure make you pay a price for my obedience. That's kind of, what, that's kind of what's behind that. I'm going to make you suffer. Well, we'll dig it, okay? Here's why we ought not to be that way. And, well, why? He talks about in verse 15. We're not going to go into that yet. We're going to go into the negative aspects of the murmurings and the complainings and the disputings and all of that. Because it drags everybody down. You get together in a group as believers to do something and you've got one Debbie Downer complaining gripemeister that is just letting it all out. And everyone around them is just hearing it for the whole time. Oh my goodness. So you got three brothers, three brothers, or two brothers and a sister, or two sisters. You got a couple brothers and sisters around that are hearing it that are like, Oh, grief, I wish I'd never even come to this thing. i got to listen to this guy for the next hour, two hours that we're doing this, whatever it is that we're working on. And you got someone else that's just like, forget it, I'm going home. i got other things to do than listen to this. And, and it really just, it kills the spirit of the thing. It really does. It just shuts it down, sucks the wind out of everybody's sails, and then nobody wants to be around that. And so then the leader's got to do something with that, like, oh, my goodness, do I just... Let them keep going or maybe, you know, maybe I can cut them out of the pack and just isolate them. They can work on something by themselves. And so everybody else can, can, uh, you know, keep a positive spirit and all that. You know, you got to figure out how to manage that sort of thing. And if it's bad enough, they got to say, hey, tell you what, why don't you just, uh, 
don't worry about it. You know, we'll, we'll see you Sunday or something like that. God bless you. Just head on home. But, but then there's offense and anger and all of that. And then the murmurings and the complainings and the disputings get worse. And it's just bad all the way around. Nothing good ever comes from murmurings and disputings because the job's still got to get done, whatever it is. And maybe it's not even a job that's getting done. Maybe it's just something good that's been organized and put together. And it's like a fellowship, for example, or, or whatever else is going on. But you got that complainer. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. And then he gives us the positive reasons why, beginning in verse 15. He says that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Now there's all the reasons right there. The rest is descriptive, and we'll get we'll get more to that here in a moment that ye may be blameless and harmless. That's the first thing. So that you are unblameable because you're not that person who's negative. You're not that disputer. You're not that one who complains and argues and goes toe-to-toe and things like that. You're not that person, and therefore, nobody has anything to blame you. Nobody has anything that they could possibly fault you for. And he says harmless as well. Why does he use that word? Well, could it be that murmurers and disputers cause harm? Well, they do. They do. They cause harm to the greater effort of, of what's going on that they're complaining about or disputing about. They actually do harm. They cause damage. I can't tell you how many, how many times I've heard this, okay? So it's coming secondhand from me, so take it for, for what it's worth. But I've heard it from enough people and from enough varied kinds of people about Bible studies that they've attended. And this is going to sound self-serving, I know, but we're not trying to be, okay? I've heard this kind of report right here. Went to such and such church for a Bible study, and all they did was sit around and share opinions and then argue. And so I didn't even want to go back to that anymore. That's the opposite of harmless. You had people that were disputing. Disputations, especially when it comes to doctrines, causes confusion. That is the opposite of what Paul throughout uh, throughout the first and second chapter has been exhorting us to. He's been exhorting us to what? Unity, being of the same mind and of one love, one spirit, one mind, all of that, all of this exhortation for us to be bound together in unity, in humility, and in love. That's the glue that really keeps it all together. Best of all, that's better than anything at all, is the love of the Holy Ghost, is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, and so on. He says to do things without, all things without murmuring and without disputing, that we can be blameless and harmless, the sons of God. That's one of the first ways that we are manifested to others as being the children of Almighty God. First of all, we're blameless. That's the first attribute of a newborn believer. Blameless. Everything that you were ever guilty of. Blameless. You're no longer held accountable for any of the sins of your past because they're gone. Well, we'd like to stay blameless in every sense of the word. And so in forsaking a murmuring and a disputing spirit, a complaining spirit and a fault-finding spirit, we retain that kind of blamelessness and we retain a degree of harmlessness. And, it, and it's, it's not a harmlessness because you are weak and ineffectual. It's not that kind of harmless. 
It's not like, a, well, okay, a rabbit is harmless. Well, actually, they're not. You stick your knuckle in front of that thing, he'll bite it. it I mean, they, they've got vicious incisors, I'll tell you that. I don't know that from experience, but just from what I've learned or heard or both. Um, it's not a harmlessness that comes from being weak or helpless, like an ant, or like some worm that you accidentally stepped on when you were walking up to your house on a rainy afternoon and they had all come up the night before or whatever. It's not that kind of harmless. You have within you the strength and the power and the ability to cause all kinds of harm. Every one of us has that sort of potential. It's harmless because of self-restraint. Now raise your hand if you've ever been angry since you've been a Christian. <laughs> now, now I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands of this because I don't want anybody to, I'm not looking for anybody to embarrass themselves or make themselves self-conscious or anything like that, but have you ever been angry to the point where you wanted to just let somebody have your right hook? Since you've been a Christian. Have you ever been angry enough that, so well, I'm not violent by nature, a preacher, so you know, that's not really, I don't really fall into that category. Okay, have you ever, no problem, we got one for you too, okay? Have you ever been so angry since you've been a Christian that you wanted to give, give somebody every piece of your mind as loudly and for as long as you possibly could? Maybe even use some language that believers don't use but you restrained yourself. You held it back. And it's not just something that new Christians experience in their early days, early months, or early years of Christianity when they're first, when they're first learning to, uh, to get a grip on, on their emotions and their reactions and that sort of thing. It's not just new Christians that experience that kind of temptation. Old Christians experience it too sometimes, especially when they've been letting things slip when they've been leaving off to pray, when they've been leaving off to spend time in the Word, when they've been leaving off to spend time with God, basically. They can follow themselves moving back towards that kind of carnal thinking that they then, and in fact, it can be harder for them sometimes, sometimes, it can be harder for the older Christian that's let themselves go into that state because they already have momentum moving, moving the wrong way. And they have to resist that. It's a little bit harder. And then sometimes it can be easier because you have already established the habit of self-restraint, the habit of holding back, holding your tongue, holding your peace as the Bible describes it. You've already established that habit. You've practiced it. And so it may be difficult. It may not be difficult, but it's important to understand that. He says that you may be blameless and harmless. That harmless is not because of weakness. It's because of self-control. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. The sons of God without rebuke. That goes in there with blameless. That goes hand in hand with being blameless. When you are living a life that is pleasing to God, then it's altogether pleasing to God, then you are without, you are above reproof. You are beyond rebuke because you haven't done anything wrong. So who's going who's gonna to rebuke you for anything? Well, they might try to. They might, they might accuse you falsely but they don't really have a leg to stand on in that respect. He says, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. So the reasons are these first things right here. Blameless, harmless, sons of God, without rebuke. And then the rest is descriptive. In the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the, as lights in the world. That's 
where the importance of it really comes in. This is where it affects others. Remember, it ain't about you. Or rather, it ain't only about you. And the Christian a lot of times gets tunnel vision. They get to thinking, oh, it's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me. And, and admittedly, especially the younger Christian, the newer Christian has to focus on themselves a lot because they're trying to overcome a lot of things in their life. But as with everything that starts small and a, and a self-oriented scope is small, now I'm not saying that in a criticizing way, I'm not saying that in any way that's, uh, uh, that's, that's critical at all, but a self-oriented scope is always small, but it grows. As the Christian grows, the scope of their attention grows, the scope of the application of all this stuff in their own understanding grows, and then it goes beyond the individual Christian. They start to realize that their life is having an impact on others around them. It's having an influence, just like any cell in the body affects the other cells that are around it. So every single believer affects the rest of the believers in the body of Christ to a greater or lesser extent, either directly or indirectly. And then your scope expands beyond that. And you recognize that your life is having an impact even outside of the body of Christ. Do you see how all of this scales from the very small to the very, very large? begins in us. We focus on ourselves, on doing what pleases God, overcoming our own shortcomings, our sins, our faults, our failures, overcome, overcome, overcome. And we do that for a long time. Some people do that quickly. Some people do it less quickly. Some people, it takes them years, but they overcome and they overcome. And then at some point, their eyes get opened. And it's not because it's the first time they've heard it. It's been said many, many times, but it's the first time that the Holy Spirit in them grabs hold of what was said and then brings it to the attention of that believer. Hey, son, hey, daughter, look outside yourself now. So you've been focused on yourself for a long time. You've been focused on overcoming the things within your own life for a long time. Now look around you and see how your life is impacting other people. See how this virtue that you have cultivated by the Spirit of God in your life has positively inspired someone else, a brother, a sister, or a sinner outside of the body of Christ. It's moved, it's, it's moved them somehow. It's inspired them somehow. I got a communication today. Um, someone was looking for someone. And I don't want to get into names and places and all of that. They were looking for them because that many years ago when they knew that person, that person had inspired them. That word inspired has been taken and it's been, uh, it's been kind of deconsecrated by overuse in the, in the English language, okay? The word inspired in its original meaning speaks of divine influence. It speaks of a, a direct and a divine influence from God. To be inspired by someone else That really isn't the truest use of the word. To be inspired by definition means to be inspired by God. But when you see that, when the Christian sees that, when when the scope of their when the scope of their vision first expands out beyond themselves and begins to see others, and then they realize, then they realize, and they've probably realized it maybe to a lesser extent before, but then they really begin to appreciate how vast. Maybe we want to say how big and important the war really is. The way I'm living is impacting someone else, either for the good or for the bad. I want it to be for the good. 
I always wanted it to be for the good. So, well, this person told me off and they just, I just really needed to put them in their place. Okay. But how did you? Did you do it by giving vent to wrath? Or did you do it the way that we learn in Proverbs? Did you, or and in the rest of the word of God, for the, the word of God for that matter, did you do it in love? Did you do it in wisdom? Did you do it in, did you do it carefully? Or did you just, did you just pull the ripcord on that chainsaw and let it fly? Because that would feel good to the flesh. How we live impacts others. And it almost seems like a repeat. I know, I know it seems like we've been talking about that a lot over the last couple of months, but we can't ever lose sight of that. Because he says here, right, in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. So right off the bat, that tells you what we are by default. If we are disciples of Christ, if we are children of God, sons and daughters of the Most High, then immediately, whether we're good Christians or we're struggling Christians because we're still trying to figure out how to do this thing, you are by default a light in the world. Now remember what Jesus says back in the Gospel of Matthew concerning being the light of the world. And what he says also in the Gospels concerning if thine eye be single and if your body being full of light. And tie these things, these references to being light together, you tie these things together as being the light of the world and what that means. And he said, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So whether your light is light or whether your light is darkness, you are light in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation one way or the other. So you're shining something, whether you're trying or not. You want to make sure that you're shining actual light. Amen? Because other people are going to see whatever you're shining, whatever you're emanating from your life. If you are the, if you are the murmuring disputer, or the disputing murmurer that he talks about in verse 14. If you're one of those, then the light that you're giving off isn't really light. But people are sure perceiving what you are emanating. We're already in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. And we are already in the world. So we may as well shine light instead of darkness. And not, not to turn it into, a, into some overdone or bland uh, positive thinking or positive influence type of thing, but there's a lot of merit to that. And where do you think they get that from? People would always rather walk past a flower than a weed. Amen? Or a dead tree. You know, I don't get much out of that except maybe some firewood. Well, there's Bible for that too. <laughs> but there we have it. He says, without rebuke in the midst of a, cro a crooked and perverse nation, blameless and harmless, he says in verse 15, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. So being a light in the world, again, that speaks of our being. It speaks of what we are. And then holding forth the word of life speaks of what we do as a result of what we are. We take action because of our condition. Holding forth the word of life. Why? That I, and Paul makes it personal here, even if it sounds selfish, he makes it personal. He says, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. What was Paul doing here? He was encouraging them to keep doing what they were doing. Remember, 
This is a letter to the church in Philippi. And the believers in Philippi were really good believers. They loved God and they loved one another and they had a passion for the things of God and they wanted to do things. They wanted to do the right thing. They wanted to live a life that was pleasing to God. So he was telling them, hey, do it this way. Do things without disputings. Do things without murmuring, complaining, and being negative and a Debbie Downer and, and taking all the joy out of everything in the Christian life. Because trust me, there's no shortage of believers that think that a long face constitutes a deep walk with God. Oh, so spiritual. Do you know how much I've suffered today, sister, brother? I'm so persecuted. Someone told me to put my Bible away when I was supposed to be working. How dare they? Well, were you on the clock? Well, I don't see what that has to do with it. Well, there's part of the problem right there. You know, a long face does not constitute a deep walk. It does not constitute a, a, a strong, close walk with God. So, well, I'm suffering. I'm suffering. And I'm not mocking genuine suffering now. But suffering, suffering isn't an ornament. It's a tool. It's a vehicle, if you will. God uses suffering to accomplish certain things in our life. He doesn't always use suffering. It's not its only tool, okay? But it's one. But it's not an ornament. And there are a lot of believers that treat it like it is. It's not about that. The myth of perennial suffering doesn't make you a saint. Okay? It's, it's not supposed to be something that's permanent. He says that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. In other words, Philippian Christians, keep doing what you're doing so that I can rejoice in the day of Christ rather than mourn. I can rejoice rather than weep. And so that I can have some knowledge now in this life that I have not run or labored. I have not, uh, I've not poured forth my efforts as an apostle in vain. In other words, help me out, guys. Work with me here. Work with me. Work with me, Paul was saying. And, and not in a desperate way, because they were already doing good. He was simply encouraging them in the midst of their already well-doing. To sum it up, if you're doing well, brothers, sisters, if you're doing well already, keep it up. Don't get weary in the midst of it. Don't grow tired in the midst of it. Whatever station that you are in in life, God will equip you to handle it. Whether it's an office in the church or whether it's a, a role in life, whether it's a role in a marriage, in a family, whether it's a, whether it's a position on a job, whatever it is, if you're there because of God, God will equip you. Don't get tired. So well, I'm tired of this thing and I shouldn't be doing it anyway. Okay. Well, then God will open a door to, of escape for you. But he's saying, keep it up. So let's take it. Remember, we're supposed to take every one of these letters as though they were written to us. This is the letter of Paul the Apostle to the church at Cheyenne. In fact, I'm probably going to teach every one of these letters in the midst of this series, just like that. This is the letter of Paul to Cheyenne. Don't be weary in well-doing. Let's do all things in our lives, whatever they may be, without murmurings and disputings. And let's be blameless and harmless, the sons of God. Let's be without rebuke. 
in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom we are already shining as lights in the world. Keep up the good work. So well, what if I'm not doing good work? What if I'm not really measuring up to that? Okay, well, then we know what to do, don't we? Whenever we have a shortcoming, we know what to do. The first thing we do, we bring it to Jesus. Jesus, help me with this. Help me with this. I'm failing in this area. I need your help. Give me self-control. Give me restraint so that I can actually shine some light, whatever it is that we may need. And then in doing so, you'll give others cause to rejoice. And those that have labored among you to know they haven't labored in vain, that something has been accomplished in your life and has brought glory to God and has made you and I both more in the image of Christ. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving.